0: September 19th, 2018 Anarchist disaster relief after Florence Thousands of police evict defenders of Germany's Hambach Forest A recap of the International Week of Solidarity with Anarchist Prisoners And much more on this episode of The Hotwire A weekly anarchist news show brought to you by the ex-worker With me, the rebel girl And normally the riot dog too but they went to a farm upstate. Wait, no, not like that. They read and have it and literally decided they should learn farming so they can experiment with different ways of living and, uh, combat the material and spiritual poverty imposed on us by our epoch. Hmm, sounds pretty good to me. So don't worry, the Riot Dog will be back soon. Fork bork. bork. A full transcript of this episode with show notes and useful links can be found at our website, primethinkcom podcast, where you can also find a radio-ready 29-and-a-half-minute version of this episode for standard radio broadcasts and no cussing. And now, the headlines. According to the Earth First Newswire... Minnesota regulators postponed a meeting last Tuesday on Enbridge Energy's planned Line 3 replacement after pipeline opponents disrupted the meeting with a bullhorn and a boombox. In Hotwire 34, we reported on the illegal liberation of 5,000 mink from a fur farm in Sweden. Three weeks later, we are happy to report that the fur farm's owner has declared that he will close the farm because, quote, it is not worth the effort. The exploiters of this world are motivated by greed, but our thirst for freedom is greater than theirs for money. And that's why we will win. Speaking of courageous solidarity with non-human beings, three climate activists in St. Louis disrupted a presentation promoting the absurd falsehood that rising temperatures and CO2 levels are benefiting the planet and humanity. The conference, with the vague name the Gateway Eagle Council, brought together Pizzagate InfoWars conspiracy theorists like Jack Posobiec and Mike Cernovich, far-right provocateur James O'Keefe, whose fumbled spying on J-20 activists actually cost the government their case against our comrades, as well as racist ex-sheriff Joe Arpaio and the billionaire-backed alt-right-linked head of Turning Point USA, Charlie Kirk. The conference was somewhat of an intellectual suit-and-tie Unite the Right, except without the explicit neo-Nazism. However, there were plenty of links to fascists, not the least of which were some of the international guest speakers, including an MP with Poland's far-right anti-immigrant law and justice party, as well as an MP from Germany's far-right alternative for Deutschland party, who have been behind the mobs in Chemnitz and Koton, who have been chanting straight-up neo-Nazi slogans and attacking anyone who looks, quote, not German. We find it promising that while the far right are building international networks, overlapping struggles like climate activism and anti-fascism are beginning to merge, kind of like how excited we were last episode to see the prison strike rep at myriad sites of struggle, from anti-confederate statue toppling to anti-pipeline treason. However, news of this far-right conference in St. Louis only blipped on sites like it's going down a few days before it began and with more time and more mobilization, we hope that in the future, this kind of conference can be shut down full stop. On Friday in Dallas, Texas, dozens of protesters blocked Interstate 30 to protest the murder of Botham Jean. A black man who was killed in his own apartment after a filthy white cop entered without a warrant and, as she admits, without even a claim to probate cause. Rather, she has offered the crappy excuse that she thought she was entering her own home and Jean was a burglar inside. However, that hasn't stopped the police from trying to taint Jean's image post-mortem by searching his house and publicly releasing that they found marijuana. Cops are disgusting. There is nothing a black person can do. Not even have a relaxing smoke in the comfort of their own home that does not risk murder by cop. The blog Anti-Racist Canada offers the following report. This past Saturday, members of Lamut traveled to Knessetaki in Quebec to hold a rally. Or something. Ostensibly, they claim to be trying to forge some sort of ties with First Nations people there. But given that they showed up uninvited, strikes me more as an effort to intimidate. If that is the case, it did not go as planned. With Oka people greeting them with middle fingers, flags of indigenous struggle, and aggressively walking the streets until Lamut took off. At least one member of Lamut tweeted out the following afterward. Morons taki needs to be quarantined. Way to build bridges there, you alt-right idiots. The Mohawks in Kanesataki fended off a military occupation in 1990. Why a few weekend warrior biker cosplayers thought they wouldn't face serious resistance to their racist message is beyond us. Hey, hey!
1: F- F- you. You F- too, F- F- you little bitch.
0: F- F-
2: F- F- don't
0: come back. Evictions have begun in Germany's Hambach Forest. So far, police have destroyed 13 of about 50 tree houses that were built to house forest defenders and 35 people have been arrested. According to Unicorn Riot, as of this show airing, no activist has left a defensive position voluntarily. The energy company RWE wants to cut the 12,000-year-old ancient forest to extract coal from under the soil, utilizing the largest mobile machines ever created. Seriously, take a look at it. It's Avatar come to life. Solidarity demonstrations with hundreds of protesters have taken place across Germany, such as in Berlin and Cologne. We received the following report from a comrade in Germany about how the forest defense is going.
2: Um, Ambacher Forest.
0: It's a name that you
2: might have heard already, and if not, it's about time. Because we're talking about a 12,000-year-old forest in West Germany, or at least about what's left of it at the moment, which is only a fraction of what it was years ago.
3: The always power-hungry RWE company, one of the biggest German energy companies, has been devouring this forest for years, for the coal beneath it, and pushing the forest and all surrounding communities and villages to disappear. A small group of activists, which then grew larger, squatted the forest several years ago to protect it from being cut down, and those people have been living there since.
2: RWE has now called for an eviction, supported by regional and local politicians and their police hordes. At least 3,500 cops have been employed. A regional minister for construction decided on the ridiculous grounds that the tree houses in the forest were not fireproof and had no escape routes, That they needed to be evicted to protect the squatters. Of course, it's not about the coal. No, it's about the safety of the activists.
3: Another side of this whole drama is that right now there is a state commission with politicians, companies, and environmental NGOs discussing the end of open coal mining in Germany. Of course, RWE did not want to wait for such talks to come to an end and preferred to present them with accomplished facts.
2: The activists were nonetheless prepared for this possible scenario. They are very committed and tenacious people who know this forest probably better than anyone else. Maybe the minister who ordered this raid on the company itself thought that this might go fast for them. But man, were they wrong.
3: We are now at the beginning of the sixth day of this eviction, and the cops are only a bit more than half through the forest, which has been populated by lots of micro-communities in the form of smaller villages called Oak Town cozy town or galleon all of them living in tree houses 15 to 20 meters above ground
2: despite completely crazy images evoked by the state of vietnam style scenarios and that's really the words used here in germany no major clashes have been reported instead there's been a lot of civil disobedience and simply a very firm and unrelentless use of one's own body to withstand this attempt of eviction the activists prepared more than 10 meters long high mono and tripods, forcing the cops to slow down their dismantling of the houses and to operate in heights most of them were not trained for.
3: In a second step, they disclosed having dug holes in the ground with people locked inside to stop heavy machinery from getting near the structures and people holding out there for more than 12 hours. Meanwhile, the cops tried their best to keep the press away and using the means we all know they will use when nobody can document it. Brutal violence, pepper spray, and endangering the life of activists on trees by cutting their lifelines. We don't have exact figures, but following the reports of the legal team, we can say that around 100 persons have been taken to a police station in a nearby city, where nearly all of them have been released after being processed. And all of them were welcomed by fellow comrades waiting outside for legal and emotional support.
2: This weekend was, for obvious reasons, the high point of the massive support given to the costs from people not living in the forest. We can highlight some of those actions. One massive intervention was about getting more people into the woods to fight the evictions with blockades at the foot of the tree houses. And this worked quite well. Especially on Sunday, several hundred people managed to cross or flow through the police lines during an official demonstration.
3: To the big demonstration came at least 7,000 people, maybe even up to 14,000. It was accompanied by a second action planned, with hundreds of people bringing young trees to immediately and symbolically replace the trees already cut down by company workers.
2: Several groups also organized rallies and demonstrations in their own cities all over Germany, including some occupations. One major action was the squatting of a nearby open coal mine where activists managed to force a shutdown of the machines. Hambi um,
3: bleibt. Um, bleib. um, bleib. um, That's the battle cry. Hambi um, stays. Hambi um, stays. Hambi um, stays.
2: And this was a contribution by the Anarchist Radio Berlin.
0: For the last week, a general strike against a new tax reform has rocked Costa Rica. Unions and protesters have accused the new fiscal law of having a disproportionate impact on the lower classes. A maxi-poly supermarket, which is owned by Walmart, was looted last Wednesday during strike actions in Limón. While Friday in Punta Reynas, several shops were looted. Several banks were attacked and demonstrators blocked a yearly quasi-nationalist torch bearing ritual from taking place. Striking dock workers in Iquique, Chile, armed with spears and iron bars, caused nearly a quarter million dollars of damage to a mall during a strike that they have continued to undertake despite union leaders negotiating an end to the strike with management. Iquique is the site of the Santa Maria School Massacre, where in 1907, thousands of striking miners were slaughtered in the single worst mass killing in Chilean history. The massacre was later avenged by the anarchist Antonio Ramon Ramon, whose brother died in the Santa Maria School. Years later, Ramon Ramon waited outside the residence of the general that ordered the massacre, declared his intent to avenge the slain workers of Iquique, and stabbed the general in the eye leading to his eventual death we recorded last hotwire just as evening was setting in on september 11th the date when chile's fascist military dictatorship of the 70s and 80s began during the daytime thousands marched to the memorial of the disappeared and in the night at least nine neighborhoods throughout santiago saw militant street demonstrations that lit barricades on fire, attempted to destroy a police drone with fireworks, and at least four police officers were shot. Similar actions took place in the cities of Concepcion and Valdivia. A few days later, five more police were injured after high school students attacked them with chairs, stones, and Molotov cocktails. Two students were arrested, and the police used it as an excuse to further push legislation currently being considered that would fast track the expulsion of students who were arrested for rioting. President Trump honored September 11th by claiming that the government's response to Hurricane Maria, which actually left more people dead on American dominated soil than the attacks of September 2001, was somehow, quote, incredibly successful. Luckily, Just like after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, people working outside of government bureaucracy and disregarding the state's authority are on the ground in the Carolinas to respond to the damage wreaked by Florence this past week. To hear more, we incredibly have an interview with anarchists doing disaster relief on the ground in Wilmington, North Carolina. Can you tell us who we're speaking with and what's going on the ground in Wilmington?
1: Hi, I'm a local Wilmington autonomous person, unlabeled, and I am here with a...
4: Uh,
5: I'm a local anarchist.
4: And we're here to interview... I'm a uh, autonomous relief worker coming from out of town, working with Blue Ridge Autonomous Defense. I am
6: likewise uh, an autonomous and solidarity building relief worker from far out of town. I'm here with Mutual Aid Disaster Relief.
1: So I guess tell me some of the things that you're able to help do, and what have you seen so far coming to Wilmington?
4: And so part of <clears throat> what we've been trying to figure out, especially now that we're getting a little bit more of a sense for conditions on the ground, is just you know being like a mutual aid solidarity organization or organizations instead of trying to be like uh, a defined crew of people who are like you know the helpers helping the helpies. Uh, We've been trying to figure out how to organize it, like help uh, local folks organize mutual aid networks. One of the challenges we've been figuring out is um, currently in Wilmington, there's already been a whole lot of flooding, a whole lot of hurricane damage people whose roofs are collapsing in from the rain, or, you know, we've seen like roofs torn off by uh, the wind and things like that. And there's also the flooding. So we've talked with people who are still living in apartments that have flood water. You know, the apartment itself is flooded up to like their thighs and they just have to like wade around in that water in order to do cooking and they have like infant children the flood waters are only going to be rising from here so there's going to be a lot more people who will be displaced from their housing so we're anticipating there's going to be an ever-increasing housing crisis of just like people who don't have a place to stay needing somewhere safe and dry and on top of that there's been sightings of ice and border patrol vehicles in nearby town of kinston and also here in Wilmington, And so we don't know exactly what ICE and Border Patrol are up to here, but it just seems like if they're here, it is going to be particularly unsafe for undocumented folks to be seeking assistance in any of the shelters. So that's part of the urgency behind also trying to figure out some kind of autonomous and uh, decentralized mutual aid structure so that people who have particular vulnerabilities like that and wouldn't feel safe in a shelter... Can still find a safe place to stay without having to have eight people trying to organize all of that.
6: We've done a lot of supply distribution, particularly to neighborhoods that uh, tend to get overlooked or are full of people who don't have the resources to evacuate, don't have the resources to do a lot of storm prep and don't have the resources necessarily to self-advocate to put claim on or to get to places that supplies are distributed so we try to bring stuff to them as well as again helping with things like house repair and in the spirit of solidarity not charity to ask them what they need and to get information from them about other places that are needed needs they know of that we haven't thought of etc. Other challenges are just Friction with other organizations, particularly large uh, state-backed organizations or simply large and wealthy organizations that have very set ways of doing things that don't necessarily appreciate, quote, competition, unquote. Um, we'd like to hear more from y'all, I think, as people who are who are local to the area and have a little bit more knowledge of what it was like before and what's going on now.
1: I guess for me, being here, uh, what I found is, you know, you find the worst and the best of people. I did hear something about ICE coming here, and you know I just think that's terrible. I think in a crisis situation, you shouldn't be looking to make things harder on any human being because that's not humanity. Um, also, one of the things that I found very frustrating is prior to this all starting, um, the governor was on talking about how they emptied jail cells just to put looters, uh, in prison. Um, also price gougers. And while I believe it's completely wrong for price gougers, um, to be doing that kind of thing, generally, if people are looting, it's because they're in desperate need of something. That's just been my experience of what I've found in conversations with people. And first of all, if you can let people out of prison because you've now felt that they weren't really that bad of a crime why were they in there in the first place and why are you out there looking for people committing a crime instead of out there trying to help people that are in need you know government is very narrow-minded and they don't look at the whole picture they don't see people as people Um, You know, it's different if you live in a $500,000 home and your power's out and you have a sick relative that's living there with you. Oh, well, let's go help them. But what about all the sick people living in a place that don't even have a phone to be able to make a phone call and get help? Who's checking on them?
5: Yeah. Yeah. Also, regarding the arrests uh, and jails, we only heard basically... Uh, through word of mouth like while the storm was going on we had no power that five people had been arrested for looting a dollar general and then we heard that the people that did that in the area that it was uh, then kind of like put the whole area on curfew until five o'clock and that part of Wilmington is like mostly low income and like people of color that live there And, like, I can only imagine... I mean, it was a Dollar General. It wasn't a Best Buy, which, like, even if it was a Best Buy, like, I don't care. (laughs) Then, either. But, like, it's a Dollar General. What are you really going to get? And the manager um, didn't even want to press charges or, like, have them be arrested. That part of town is the town that's, like, got the police station, that's heavily policed, that, like, people are always going to be getting harassed by the police. So... Like, of course, you know, they went and went after those people, but they're not doing anything about people that are price gouging people that are like out selling generators and stuff
1: for double the price. Uh,
6: The concept of enforcing a curfew is always interesting to me because uh, to actually enforce a curfew is incredibly resource intensive, especially in a town that's fairly spread out like Wilmington, like the number of people you need doing that, which means those people aren't helping people out or working to do anything else, and you're spending resources on that. And on the flip side, if you're not actually planning on enforcing the curfew, then you're sort of engaging in a pointless exercise in authority whose only purpose is if you choose to hassle somebody now, you have some legal pretext for kind of generically being like, well, you have to do what I say now because you're out after curfew. And
4: And one other thing that... um we've noticed as we've started doing supply drops in some of the more low income marginalized neighborhoods you know like people in those neighborhoods have told us that you know they've seen uh relief vehicles go by and tried to like flag them down you know they've all refused to stop and so we were the first people to stop in any of those neighborhoods and just be like hey are you all right do you need anything what do you need it's been really Incredible, I guess, to see like, how quickly those connections can be made with people like between us as perfect strangers and just like how much like, mutual appreciation there is and also how much connection there is to be made over a mutual hatred of the cops.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much for speaking with us and stay safe out there. In our show notes, we have links for donating food and relief materials to groups like Mutual Aid Carborough, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, and Blue Ridge Autonomous Defense. Please check them out. In the working-class towns of Lawrence and Andover, Massachusetts, just half an hour north of Boston, multiple gas explosions and fires destroyed houses, killed one person, and left at least 10 more injured. Police tweeted out a Google map marked with the locations of all of the fires and explosions. However, they took it down soon after because in the top bar of the screen-captured browser, there were favorited links for all of the leftist groups that the police were monitoring. Why weren't police favoriting links about the dangerous conditions of poorly developed, low-income neighborhoods with neglected houses owned by greedy slum lords? because police protect property and go after those who challenge the organization of society according to a hierarchy of wealth. Police are scum. Evan Greer, the genderqueer anarchist riot folk musician who grew up in Andover, tweeted out the following soon afterward, which echoes the principle of decentralized and autonomous relief that our comrades in Wilmington brought up. Quote, I grew up in Andover next to Lawrence. It's super important to understand that Lawrence is the poorest community in New England with a huge immigrant population. Don't give money to the Red Cross, give it to local community groups there who will be supporting residents for the long haul. One of those groups is Bread and Roses Lawrence, whose name is taken from the 1912 Lawrence Textile Workers strike, organized by the industrial workers of the world. The strike came to be known as the Bread and Roses Strike for the popularity of a James Oppenheim poem as a rallying cry among the workers. Our lives shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. Hearts starve as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us roses. And speaking of lyricists, in this month's episode of Trouble, Submedia explores hip-hop, as a potent site of revolutionary politics, drawing on the first hand knowledge and experiences of some of Turtle Island's baddest grassroots MCs. It drops on September 25th at 8 p.m. on Sub.media. Check it out.
6: In the eyes of the government, we are the enemy.
5: In a world where there is no government, anarchy rules this summer. Get ready for the most action-packed podcast.
6: We continue fighting because we hate all authority and love freedom, which cannot be given, but must be taken.
5: Such scenes as this is not a dialogue, a crime called freedom. Party's over, and many
3: text and audio material of interest to anarchists
5: check out resonance audio distro dot org
0: in this week's repression roundup imam Sadiki abdullah hassan a revolutionary organizer and outspoken advocate of the National Prisoner Rights Movement has appealed the Ohio Department of Corrections decision that has restricted him from communication access for a year leading up to the August 21st nationwide prison strike. The IWOC is asking people to call Warden Richard Bowen at 330-743-0700 and demand that the prison restore all of Hassan's property his j kiosk access and remove the barricades from his cell. There's a sample script in our show notes. All of the Vaughn 17 have been relocated to the same facility, and while they're glad to be reunited, being all together means that the prison can easily repress all of them as a group. Since their relocation, they have been experiencing new and intensified forms of repression. This repression has led them to go on a recent hunger strike, and they're asking for support in the wake of retaliation. They've issued seven demands, and supporters are asking people to call Warden Robert May at 302-856-5280 and insist the prison meet the Vaughn 17th demands. There were eight arrests in Denver after a queer resistance rolling dance party was attacked by Proud Boys and then cops, On September 15th, there is a link to a fund to help those arrested on our site. Berkeley PD has been doxing arrested Antifa protesters on Twitter, opening them up to harassment. Documents obtained by at Lucy Parsons Labs showed that BPD published this information on social media in order to create a counter-narrative favorable to the police. BPD officials said the social media-driven protests have created the need for a Twitter protocol for mugshots and acknowledged that the tweets would get broad national exposure. One police email had the subject line, Info Flow from Jail to Twitter. The policy also made clear that police would post mugshots on Twitter only when the arrests were protest related. As if we needed more proof that the cops and the Klan go hand in hand, check out at Lucy Parsons Labs on Twitter for updates and more info. There is a detailed report on It's Going Down about the horrific ongoing harassment of Leslie Hernandez and her son, Aaron McDonald, who is a prisoner held by Indiana State prisons in Michigan City, Indiana. Leslie and others have been holding protests outside the prison to highlight the poor living conditions inside the prison and to end the ban on no-contact visitation. Check out the full report on It's Going Down and call Warden Ron Neal at 219-874-7258 and demand that they keep their dirty hands off Aaron. Prisoners in Halifax, Nova Scotia, unceded Mi'kmaq Territory are ending their strike at the Burnside Jail, and we have excerpts from the statements they issue. Dear supporters, you are commended for your work on our behalf. None of us thought that we would gain so much support by sharing our conditions with the public. The negative perception of us inside seems so concrete that it becomes surreal when we began to read our demands in the newspaper and hear that our situation has gained national attention. The communique further reads, it is with heavy hearts we write that shortly after the end of our protest, a fellow prisoner incarcerated here lost his life. The conditions and environment here speak for themselves. Since the protests started, we have been locked down with even less time spent outside, in contact with our families, or getting any recreation. We know how these conditions hurt the mental health of people imprisoned here. We renew our calls for treatment of mental health, training, and programming. We ask the Minister of Justice, how many more people have to die in this facility until our cries for help are heard? We send our condolences and love to the family of our brother. We hope that our call for justice will be heard and that his life is not lost in vain. We have come to the conclusion that this is an uphill battle that will only be won from the outside support, meaning all of you. To the protesters who came right down through the woods to the back of the jail, risking their freedom to stand in solidarity with us, you gave us the most liberating feeling We want you to know we could hear you, and we believe you. We are not alone. Thank you. We love you and are grateful to have you by our sides. You can read the full statement on It's Going Down. Last month, we reported on the first half of the International Week of Solidarity with anarchist Christians. At the end of August, more action and events were held like an info booth with pancakes in Helsinki that raised money for lawyers of the anti-fascist network case in Russia. There was also graffiti and wheat-pasted messages in solidarity with the network defendants in Moscow, St. Petersburg, in Vologda, Chiboksari, and Kursk. In Moormonks, comrades held a benefit film screening of the excellent Irish movie about standing up for what you believe in in the face of political imprisonment, in the name of the father. We highly recommended. Meanwhile, the Solidarity presentation in Minsk, Belarus, was cancelled after harassment from state authorities. In Ostrahan, anarchists handed out leaflets that read Since October 2017, FSB officers have kidnapped six activists in Penza, planted on some of them weapons, and tortured them to extract confessions of participation in the so called terrorist organization network. They were beaten hanged upside down and tortured with electric shocks. At the end of January 2018, the FSB arrested two more anti-fascists in St. Petersburg, and they were also tortured. After Solidarity Actions, criminal cases were opened in Moscow and Labin, and several more people were arrested. They were also tortured by electric shocks. All these arrests are part of the repression against activists, started before the presidential election and the FIFA World Cup 2018. Apparently, the support from the Week of Solidarity could be felt by at least some of the Penza case defendants, because earlier this month, Arman Saginbayev, one of the defendants, reversed his previous guilty plea, which was extracted under torture, and in a statement released by his lawyer, described the horrific treatment which led to his false confession. It's hard for us to even imagine what Armand has gone through. And if this makes it up to you, comrade, we admire your courage for telling the truth and sticking up for yourself and your other comrades who have also suffered at the hands of the state. Please show Armand and his co-defendants some support by donating to ABC Russia. And while hashtag resist Democrats are trying to sway November's elections by jacking up on Russiagate theorists, they ignore one of the political imperatives both Russia and the USA hold in common, the repression of those fighting fascism. In April of this year, anti-fascists turned out against the national socialist movement rally in Noonan, Georgia, that saw the return of the now ubiquitous strategy of police, with their backs turned to the fascists, heavy-handedly attacking anti-fascists and protecting neo-Nazis. It's Going Down reports that it was later exposed that the city of Noonan and the Coweta County Sheriff's Office treated a fantasy about an antifa rampage in Noonan authored by a far-right militia supporter as intelligence on anti-racist planning and intentions for April 21st. Twelve anti-fascists were arrested and six still face charges, two of whom are facing felonies. We have a fundraiser for their legal fees linked in our show notes. And now, for prisoner birthdays and next week's news. September 26th is the birthday of Greg Curry, one of the prison activists unjustly convicted of murder for the death of a prison guard during an 11-day uprising at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in 1993. The uprising united prisoners across racial, religious, and gang divisions. Greg has a special request for his birthday this year. He's asking people to make t-shirts that say Free Greg Curry on them with gregcurry.org on the back and send photos of yourself wearing it to his Facebook page, which we have in our show notes, along with his address and a useful guide for writing prisoners from New York City anarchist Black Cross. And now for next week's news. Our list of events that you can plug into in real life. On September 21st at 6 p.m., there's a post-prison strike letter-writing night at Bone Shaker Books in Minneapolis. On Tuesday, September 25th in Indianapolis, trial begins for Aaron Israel Isby. But it's not the kind of trial you might think of from listening to our show. Israel, according to Indiana Department of Corrections Watch, is suing the state of Indiana and Indiana Department of Corrections for holding him in solitary confinement in Indiana prisons for 26 years without an adequate review or explanation for keeping him in solitary confinement. IDOC Watch, in solidarity with Aaron Israel Isby, calls on all socially and politically conscious organizations and individuals to attend the trial. It begins at 8.30 a.m. on September 25th in the courthouse inside the Birch Bay building on Ohio Street. Good luck, Israel. We hope you win. Later in the month, on September 29th, League of the South are holding a rally in Elizabethton, Tennessee to protest the fall of Silent Sam and other Confederate monuments. According to the call to action, Sycamore Shoals State Park has been announced as the venue, but the word from park officials is no one has applied for a special permit for the announced date. The League continues to promote the event online, despite this so be ready despite what state officials might say stay tuned to at holler network and at knox radical on twitter for updates on september 29th there is a demo at 6 p.m in defense of liebig 34 a self-organized anarcha queer feminist collective house and social center in berlin the house was squatted in 1990 later legalized and their contract ends in december The gentrifying landlord is trying to kick them out. So, again, if you want to help support the space, show up at 6 p.m. September 29th at Wiesmerplatz Plaza. In Tucson, Arizona, on September 28th and 29th, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief continue their tour, which will have visited 28 states by the end of the year. On Friday, September 28th at 7 p.m., they will host Protectors vs. Profiteers, Communities in Resistance to Disaster Capitalism. And on Saturday, September 29th at 10 a.m., they will host Giving Our Best, Ready for the Worst, Community Organizing as Disaster Preparedness. Both workshops will be held at the MST, Global Justice Center, on East 26th Street. If you're in the Balkans, make sure to visit the Crime Think table at the 12th Annual Balkan Anarchist Book Fair on September 28th to the 30th in Novi Sad, Serbia. Find out more at bask2018.noblogs.org. The Anarchist Book and Propaganda Gathering in Santiago, Chile, is taking place October 13th and 14th in the historically rebellious neighborhood La Victoria. Find out more at encuentroanarchista.org. In Brooklyn, New York, on October 19th, there's a benefit punk show to raise some funds for recently released long-term political prisoners. It's at 8.30 p.m. at Pine Box Rock Shop, and no one will be turned away for lack of funds. On October 20th and 21st in London, England, instead of an anarchist book fair, comrades there are organizing a decentralized anarchist festival. And we are thrilled at this proposal. Book fairs are great but it's kind of curious how events surrounding publishing became the default form of public anarchist gatherings. In the early 2000s, sure, you had anarchist book films, but you also had, for example, the National Conference on Organized Resistance, which had tables with books and zines, but was more focused on building skills and networks for resistance movements. Or take the Crime Think gatherings, where people could come together in a space free of exchange or money, share wild ideas, and in a small way, prefigure what an anarchist society might look like. We're excited to see what happens with the Anarchist Festival in London. And if you want to be part of it, email anarchistfestival at riseup.net. The Nomi space in Yogyakarta, Indonesia is raising funds to equip their info shop with everything necessary to publish books, run an alternative school in a local village, house a chapter of the Anarchist Black Cross Indonesia, and run a few counter-information sites. Yogyakarta was the site of some impressive anarchist resistance on May Day and some severe ensuing repression, which led to the end of the Libera Cafe and InfoShock. So now, anti-authoritarians are in need of a new social center. We have links to donate to help get off to Nomi off the ground in our show notes. And lastly, the 2019 Certain Days freedom for political prisoners calendar is now out the calendar is themed around health slash care and it features art and writing from current and former political prisoners like david gilbert mike and chuck africa and laura whitehorn find out more at certaindays.org. and that's it for this hot wife as always thanks to underground reverie for the music thanks to our comrades in wilmington for speaking with us and thanks to the Forest Rebels in Hambach for the update. Stay in touch with us by email at podcast at or follow us on Twitter at Hotwire Weekly. Don't forget to check out all the links, mailing addresses, and useful notes we customize for this episode at crimethink.com. You can subscribe to the Hotwire on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Ex-Worker. You can listen to us through the Anarchist Podcast Network, Channel Zero. Believe it or not, every hotwire is radio ready, so feel free to put the hot wire on your local airwaves. If you do, let us know so we can plug your station. Stay informed, stay rebel, plug into the hotwire.